The South African Jewish Board of Deputies is the organization that engages with the South African government on behalf of the Jewish community. Join Sharice Zephard for the next hour to find out what the SAJBD has been up to. 101.9 High FM. Phil Clark is Professor of International Politics at SOAS, the School of Oriental Studies. He specializes in conflict and post-conflict issues in Africa, with a particular focus on peace, truth, justice, and reconciliation. He will be a guest at the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center this coming Sunday, the 2nd of May, where he will be talking on welfare, justice, and COVID-19 in Rwanda, tackling inequality after the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jarisa. A pleasure to speak to you. So this month marks the 27th year since the Rwandan genocide. You have just returned from a trip to Rwanda. What is happening there, um, Phil? I think what Rwanda's going through is still quite remarkable. And, and I think people often overlook uh, just how uh, remarkable the situation is. This is a, a country that experienced this genocide quite recently. I think 27 years is not really that long. And we've got a situation in Rwanda today where <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of convicted genocide perpetrators are, are back in the community living side by side with genocide survivors, living back in the very same places where they committed crimes in 1994. And generally, the country is very peaceful, is very stable. People are back on the farms getting on with uh, productive work. And I think a lot of people outside of Rwanda take this as a given, but inside the country, uh, this is not a given. It's not guaranteed that Rwanda would look like this 27 years after the genocide. So so I think it's important to, to recognise the, the huge gains that the country has made. You talk about it's not a given. People live with trauma. Um, people who's fa- who have witnessed their families being massacred. How are they coping with the trauma? Is the government helping in terms of reconciliation? I think that's the right question, Sherry. So I think trauma is a huge reality for all Rwandans who lived through the genocide. The, the psychological damage that the genocide did is palpable. It's part of people's everyday life. The, the government has helped in many, many different ways. Um, there was a National Unity and Reconciliation Commission. Um, one of the big things that that commission did was to encourage dialogue at the local level between perpetrators and survivors. And, and I think that made a big difference. But much of the work of dealing with trauma and other legacies of the genocide has actually fallen to, to non-state actors. It's fallen to church groups. It's fallen to, uh, to schools, uh, to youth clubs. And I think that's also something that has really been impressive in my research, and I've been going to Rwanda since 2003, is watching how everyday people almost on a weekly basis are still talking about the genocide, still trying to, to work their way through it. It's, it's very much been a, a national project uh, to, to, to try to stabilise the country, but also to deal with that psychological trauma that people are dealing with. Well, what do you notice each time you go? Does it become harder as the time goes on? Does it become easier? Is there more resentment that builds up? Is there more anger? Is there more desire for revenge? Is there fear that it might happen again? I think the biggest difference that I've seen in, in the 18 years that I've been going to Rwanda is the, the, the lessening suspicion between people, especially in rural areas. When, <clears throat> when I first went to Rwanda in 2003, there hadn't been any justice process. There hadn't even really been a formal reconciliation process. And so 
people were muttering about each other. People were pointing fingers and saying that person is a genocide perpetrator. Um, that person aided and abetted genocide crimes. And there was this real sense of uncertainty, but also suspicion. Going back to Rwanda in the last few months, um, I've seen something that I've been observing growing over time, which is a much lessening of that suspicion. Um, because Rwanda went through a, a process called Gachacha, went through 10 years of village trials. One of the big things that Gachacha did was actually get a lot of information about the genocide out in the open. It, it divulged the truth about who was responsible for genocide crimes. And, and that had a huge impact in lessening that suspicion and I think helping to build trust between people. Um, and if I go back to my research sites today, that there's a, a lot less of that finger pointing. Um, and I'm, I'm stunned actually by the fact that you can have perpetrators and survivors often living 10 meters apart from each other, sometimes even working on the same farms. And I think that justice process, getting that truth out into the open was a, a, a big part of why people are able to live like that today. It sounds like Rwanda is dealing at, at different levels. You say a little bit government um, courts, church groups. In a healing process, do you have to go through certain steps that require possibly um, acknowledgement by the, or justice or something before the process of healing from both sides can happen? Or is it fine that people work together? I don't know. Do they not harbor resentment or fear? I think it's different in every post-atrocity uh, situation. I, I also do a lot of work in Uganda and Congo. I'm married to a South African, so I've spent a lot of time in post-apartheid South Africa. And I think every every society has to go through its own kind of healing process. I think in Rwanda, one of the huge challenges was that you were never going to be able to separate out different ethnic groups. You were never going to be able to separate out uh, perpetrators and survivors after the genocide. One of the big issues around national healing in Rwanda was inevitably, because it's a small landlocked country reliant on subsistence agriculture, people were going to come back and have to live in these very tight-knit communities. And, and so there was healing that was necessary at the individual level, but it was also a question of how are you going to heal these communities uh, without the, the country exploding again? And I think to get to that point, there had to be complete acknowledgement of those crimes. You, you couldn't have this suspicion of who was responsible for the genocide and, 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 and not having dealt with that because those community relations then wouldn't be possible in, in the future. People wouldn't be able to live side by side. But also I think, and this is maybe where Rwanda differs from South Africa, there was a big emphasis in Rwanda of the need for punishment, the, the need for justice. And Rwanda had a big debate about what kind of punishment you could use and this gachacha process, the village courts, ended up using very creative punishment. They used community service much more than imprisonment. But there was a sense, too, that you couldn't have perpetrators go back to the farms, go back to their villages, unless there was a sense that they had they had paid a price for the crimes that they'd committed. Um, an amnesty, for example, like the one that South Africa used, I don't think would have worked in Rwanda. That, I think, would have left a, a lot of unresolved tension and, and really would have undermined this project of perpetrators going back and living in, in those very tight-knit communities. So healing has to happen at different levels, but it, it also has to be tailored to very particular circumstances. And, and Rwanda is a, is a very uh, particular context um, in, in that regard. I know that um, at your talk at the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre, which will be on Sunday, 
um, you will be talking about the, tackling the inequality and the impact that COVID has had. And COVID has devastated the entire world. I mean, it's at least a unifier in that way. Uh, um, has COVID had a particularly devastating effect in Rwanda? COVID's definitely been enormously challenging for, for, for Rwandan people. Um, broadly speaking, Rwanda's dealt with COVID quite well. It, it's had uh, only 260 deaths uh, because of COVID. It's had about 18 or 19,000 cases. Broadly speaking, uh, the country's been able to keep a lid on, on the pandemic. Um, I mean, one of the things that I'm I've been looking at it on my most recent field trip, and this is what I'll be talking to the Johannesburg Centre about on on Sunday, um, is that I think a big reason why Rwanda has dealt with COVID quite well is that it's put a big premium on welfare and tackling socioeconomic inequality after the genocide. And, and I think in many ways, this has been an extension of the research that I did 10 years ago on the Gachacha process, that, that we needed punitive justice for the genocide. But Rwanda said we also need socioeconomic justice, that uh, if we don't deal with inequality between ethnic groups, between other categories of people in the country, we're storing up problems for the future. Um, historically in Rwanda, inequality was, was a key driver of violence. One of the key drivers of the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994 uh, was socioeconomic differences between these different groups. Um, it was driven by poverty. Uh, it was driven by all sorts of factors, but that included people looking at their neighbour and resenting that that neighbour had more than he or she did. And, um, and violence came out of that very combustible process. So Rwanda has, has, has tried to deal with inequality through healthcare, through education, through a whole range of other processes. And that's what I'm looking at in my current research is uh, more of this socioeconomic justice dimension. But that socioeconomic development has been tested by COVID. And part of what I've been looking at is how has the, the welfare system in Rwanda dealt with, with the pandemic. And I think it, my major conclusion is that actually the welfare system in Rwanda has stood up pretty well um, under the pressures of COVID-19. You've visited Rwanda over how many years? It's over 18 years. So I've, I've gone back to the country at least once a year um, for the last 18 years. 18 years. Um, and you talk about the growth and you just explained, you know, the, the, the inequalities and, in a way, opportunities that the country faces. You know, I, I know with friends who visit South Africa once a year, but they come for a certain period of time and they are great um, markers of what's happening. You know, they come in and say, ah, oh, you know, they come in 2010 and they say, the country is amazing and I've never seen it looking like this in the World Cup. And then they come five years later and, and they can mark time in a way that we, we are unable to do. When you go back each time, to, and you say for a lengthy periods of time, you're not just in and out. I think four months was um, how long you've just been there. That's right. When you go back each time, is there a sense of intrepidation? Is there a sense of excitement? And do you ever fear going back? Do you ever fear another, if it happened before, it can happen again? I don't have that fear, Sharice, but I, I, I definitely have a sense that there are still tensions at the local level. And, and I think this has been a big part of my research. And it's part of the reason I do go back every year is to watch the fluctuations in people's relationships and people's emotions. Every year is different, that there are different dynamics at play. So the big picture, I think, is that the country has done extremely well since 1994, but some years have been tenser than others. I, I've got a a range of 10 or 12 uh, field sites in Rwandan villages that I go back to every year. And part of the reason I I go back to the same places is that I want to see those slight fluctuations. I want to know 
which neighbors are fighting which other neighbors? What, what are the local issues that are big this year and weren't big the year before? And obviously at the moment, COVID-19 is the issue that everybody's dealing with, but, but there have been other times in the last 18 years that have been particularly tricky. Um, Rwanda is very tense around elections. Um, if it's an election year, there will be new tensions at the local level. And look, one of the challenges of Rwanda is that it's still a very closed political system. It's very, a, a still a very repressive state, a, as is commonly documented in the South African press um, in, in particular. And that, that picture, I think, is accurate, that there is no serious political opposition in the country. Um, this is very much a, a closed regime with Paul Kagame at the top. And the country has made remarkable strides in terms of reconciliation and dealing with inequality, but it has a big question about the state of democracy. And that filters down to the local level. Um, and in 2003, 2010 and 2017, those were the three election years during my research, um, things were difficult at the local level. Um, people were muttering about each other. People wondered about people's political allegiances. And so, but then when I went back the year after, that had kind of moved on and it was, those tensions were replaced by a whole set of other issues. So life is dynamic. Life is very unpredictable. But even if the big picture is positive in Rwanda, people still have to deal with not just the legacies of the genocide, but also kind of day-to-day life and day-to-day politics. And, and that produces lots of challenges for people too. Absolutely fascinating discussion. Um Dr. Uh, Professor Phil Clark will be a guest of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre this coming Sunday, the 2nd of May. He will talk on the topic welfare, justice and COVID-19 in Rwanda, tackling inequality after the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. Booking is essential and you can do that by going onto the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre website, which is www.jhbholocaust.co.za or you can phone Dewey on 011-640-3100. Professor uh, Phil Clark, thank you so much for joining me. Sure, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Professor Phil Clark, Professor of International Politics at SOAS.